We're in this series called Dear Paul, and I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want us to bow our heads together once you get to that place in your, in your Bible, whether it's electronic or whether it's a printed Bible. Just, just hold it there, if you will, and let's pray together. Lord, we come to a passage of Scripture today that it would be easy just to skip over it and just pass on by it. But I wouldn't be honest to the text. It wouldn't be true to being an expositor preacher, expository preacher if I did that. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help me to apply what is being said here in a way that uh, we can take home with us and it can change our lives. Lord, I know that there are people in this room, people that are watching this service, they have been through the horror of a divorce. And I pray, Lord, for comfort for them and peace. But, Lord, there's a lot of people that are married, those that are looking to get married. And I pray, Lord, that we can understand the significance of marriage and its permanence. And, Lord, help us to understand that that's your best plan. And while sometimes things are broken by sin, that even so, you can take the broken pieces and make something beautiful from them. So, Lord, please give me compassion, and please give me conviction at the same time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am pleasantly glad to be able to tell you that there is a study that has come out, just came out this past week, of West Virginians, and as you know, most of those studies aren't very favorable toward us. But this study came, I saw it first on WOWK-TV. It says that West Virginia has the highest percentage, wait a minute, of happily married couples. Isn't that good? We have the highest percentage of happily married couples. It goes on, it says, the study shows that 90% of West Virginians are happily married. That beats Minnesota at 88% and Colorado at 86%. I didn't look to see who was at the bottom of the list. I don't want to live there wherever it is. <laughs> I'm glad to be able to tell you that you live in a state where the study shows that the largest percentage of happily married people live. And I'm sure many of you are sitting next to that person to whom you're married and you're very grateful and thankful for your spouse. But I want to begin by saying as well that I know sometimes that perfect ideal is marred by divorce. And I know I have friends that have been through the agony of a divorce and what I'm going to be talking about for a few minutes today, I don't mean to add any agony or any pain to anything you have experienced. Please know this pastor's heart. I love you, and I have watched God take people's lives and do incredible things with them, even after some very hard brokenness in their lives. So just be aware, you've been through a divorce, it's not final. Your life's not over. God has a plan he wants to do something in your life, and he wants to make something beautiful from your life. So 
I'm not in any way trying to add to your burden today. If you're going through an experience like that, I want you to know that I love you. I might not understand everything you're experiencing, but I love you, and I would never do anything to harm you or hurt you uh, intentionally. Having said that, I'm going to be talking today about marriage and divorce, and I'm going to be talking about the importance of the permanence of marriage. And that, that is God's ideal. And while there are some exceptions where God allows divorce, we're supposed to be working to improve our marriages and make our marriages what God intends them uh, to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and through the rest of this book, the Apostle Paul is answering questions that were asked of him in a letter that was sent by the Corinthians to him. And as he begins chapter 7, he begins answering specifically the questions. And each time you find in these remaining chapters that little phrase, now concerning, each time you see that little phrase, he's beginning to answer another question. That question that was asked of him may have had multiple parts to it, but it was all under one general heading. And he's starting to answer those questions. And Today, I, I want to try to help you understand a particular text of Scripture that begins in verse 10 and down through verse 16, and it deals with this subject of marriage and divorce. Now, we don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, so we don't have the questions that were being asked. We have to deduce the questions by looking at the answers that Paul gives to us. And as you look at the answers, you begin to understand some of the things that, that Paul was trying to, to, to address when he gives these answers. And what I want to do today is rather than putting it, put it into question form, I want to put it into four statements, four statement form, a, a statement form, I should say. And then out of that statement form comes the question, and you'll see how that works in a moment. So there's four statements. If you're writing them down, you'll be able to see them on the screens, and hopefully you'll be able to follow through this text with me and understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. The first statement I want you to think of with me that gives to us the questions that Paul is going to answer is this. Some Jewish believers probably thought that all single individuals should get married to help fulfill the command in Genesis 1.28 to replenish the earth. Now, you're not going to see these verses on the screen, but in your Bible, just back up a couple of verses from verse 10, and you'll notice verses 7 and 8. Paul says, for I, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God. What was Paul? He was single. One in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. And there must have been some questions, maybe from Jewish believers who were in the church who knew the Old Testament scriptures well, unlike the Gentile believers, and knew that God had created marriage in the beginning for the, for the purpose of replenishing the earth. And so their thinking was that singles need to get married if they're going to obey what God intended you know, life to be and marriage to be. They need to get married and help to replenish the earth. Now, some people have done better at replenishing the earth than others of us. We, for many years in our church, had a family that I did not know all of these, but I knew 
the mama. I didn't know the daddy. He was already gone. But I knew a lot of the brothers and sisters. There were 15 children in the family. Now, you've got to understand that's a different time. It's still West Virginia, but it's a different time. You worked outside. It was more agrarian. You had uh, took care of each other and so forth. Some of you have done really well with replenishing the earth, but there must have been some Jewish believers who had questions about why don't we insist that the singles get married and help us to do what God said, replenish the earth. And Paul comes back and he says, wait a minute. It's really good if you can be like me, if you can stay single, because there are advantages to being single. And if you don't know what some of those are, I talked about them in the, in the message last week. I'm not going to go back through that. The second statement that I want you to see that gets to the text where we're specifically talking today is this. Some believers were considering, they were considering the possibility of divorce as they believed that they could better serve the Lord if they were not married. Look at verses 10 and 11 for a moment. He says, now to the married. He's been speaking to the singles. Now to the married. I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart, that is to divorce her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now you can understand that with the slogan that begins chapter 7 verse 1, that was a Corinthian slogan, it's a good for a man not to touch a woman, that not only were there some Jewish believers who thought that everybody ought to get married to help replenish the earth, but there were a lot of others that were in the church that were both believers, husband and wife. But because it's better for a man not to touch a woman, it's obviously would be better for me if I were single and I were serving the Lord. Paul recommends it. So maybe we need to divorce and we need to move on with our lives and we need to serve separately from one another. You know that there's only three places in the New Testament where exceptions are mentioned to allow for a divorce. Only three places. In other words, Paul is talking here about the permanence of marriage. No, no, no. You don't serve the Lord better separately if you're already married. You need to serve the Lord together. And if one of you leaves, you've got to stay unmarried until you're reconciled to each other because the two of you are to serve the Lord together. You're a team. You're in a partnership together. You're working together as one. And Jesus only allowed divorce under the circumstance of immorality or adultery. We read about it in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said it was allowed because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. If there's adultery, if there's some form of immorality, you are free to divorce and even free to remarry. It's not commanded that you do so. It's not required that you do so. You can repair your marriage, but if you cannot repair it, then you're allowed in those circumstances to, to divorce your spouse. There's two other places where there's two other exceptions that are given as to exceptions that allow a divorce. Not only immorality and adultery, but a little later in this text that we're going to read here in a few moments, we learn about abandonment. Specifically, the abandonment of an unbeliever from the believer. The unbeliever doesn't want to live with the believer any longer, and the unbeliever walks away. And Paul says, you're no longer under bondage in those circumstances. You're free 
to divorce and to remarry. But then there's a third, and it's found in verse 15. Just look over there briefly. We're going to come back and read this in a minute, but all of this in a minute. But notice what he says. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. Now notice the phrases, the phrase, in such cases. And notice this plural, in such cases. So divorce is allowed for the purpose of immorality. It's, it's allowed for the purpose of abandonment. But it's allowed as well in some other circumstances that we're not told specifically what they are. They are in such cases. Now, I've read those three little words, you know, over and over again through the course of, you know, nearly 45 years of ministry. And I've always struggled with what those three little words mean. But Dr. Wayne Grudem, Dr. Grudem's the research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary, put it together for me in a book that he wrote. And I write to you, I read to you what he wrote. A reasonable possibility is that in such cases, in 1 Corinthians 7.15 means in this and other similarly destructive situations. That is situations, he says, that destroy a marriage as much as adultery or desertion. Now, I don't have time to take you through the entirety of that book. He goes back into history to prove what he's saying. He goes into the biblical text to prove what he's saying. He goes into the grammar of the passage to prove what he's saying. He's saying, in essence, adultery, immorality, was an exception where God allowed divorce. Abandonment was an exception where God allowed divorce. And some other cases that were equally as damaging to a marriage were, were, were cases where God allowed divorce. And he goes on to list a few of those. Uh, just the most notable one is, is abuse. If you are being abused by your spouse, verbal abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, that's one of those such cases that damages a relationship so severely that God would allow in that circumstance a divorce to take place. And whenever divorce is allowed, remarriage is always allowed. And, and so what are you saying to me, preacher? I'm trying to help you to understand that, that Paul here really isn't talking about giving you a lot of reasons why you can get a divorce. Paul is telling you reasons why you ought to stay together. You ought to work out your differences. You ought to live together as husband and wife. You, you ought to ha have a wonderful marriage with one another. Husbands and wives should work together as partners, he says. Husbands and wives, both Christians, you don't need to depart from one another to be able to serve God. You can serve God together. And can you think of some couples in the Bible that are examples of what I'm talking about? How about Abraham and Sarah? Or what about Joseph and Mary? Or how about Elizabeth and Zechariah? Or Maybe Aquila and Priscilla. Those are all power couples. Those are all married couples that in their marriage, they serve God together. So but Paul says, if you're single, you don't have to get married to help replenish the earth. Just because you've got some of the Jewish believers who are telling you that, that's not true. It's better if you can stay like I am. There are advantages to that. And if you're married and both of you are believers, I know, it, I, I know this, the Corinthian slogan is that 
It's better for a man not to touch a woman, but you got to understand that that's a Corinthian slogan. It is better for you to stay married. It is better for the two of you to work together. It is better for the two of you to, to work on your relationship and your marriage and to serve the Lord like a power couple, serving God together with one another. There's a third statement. Some believers were married to unbelievers and wondered if their unsaved spouse would negatively impact their spiritual life, given that they were unequally yoked together. See what I'm talking about? you got singles. You don't have to get married to replenish the earth. You, you can be single, and there are advantages to that. Those of you that are believers, husband and wife, you don't have to divorce. You don't serve better as a single. You serve better as a team, a power couple. But there's those circumstances where a wife or a husband comes to Christ and the spouse doesn't come to Christ. And there were some who thought, well, maybe if that's the circumstance, it would be better for me to divorce my unbelieving spouse because we're unequally yoked together and that's going to create problems for us and create problems in our marriage. They thought they might be corrupting their walk with God if they stayed in that mixed marriage, that believer and unbeliever marriage. And Paul's going to address that. Notice verses 12 to 14. He says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't speak on this subject, but I, as an apostle of Christ, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Just let me give you just a little idea. By the way, let me get through the technicalities here, and we're going to get really practical in a moment. Okay? But let me take you through a little of an understanding. Here, here is a, a woman who comes to Christ. She's married to a man. They were married long before she became a Christian. But Paul comes to the town. He preaches the gospel. She hears the gospel. She believes in Christ. It could have been the man and not the wife, but we're just going to use it in this fashion because of the way it's written in history. Uh, this woman comes to Christ, but the husband doesn't come to Christ. Does that create a problem? Well, sure it can. Tertullian, who is a one of the ancient church fathers, he lived in the late 2nd century and in the early part of the 3rd century, wrote a book about mixed marriages, talking about believers with unbelievers, about mixed marriages. And in his book, he writes this, for the sake of visiting the brethren, this is, this is why he's upset with his wife, not Tertullian, the man about whom he's writing, for the sake of visiting the brethren, she goes around from street to street to other cottages, especially those of the poor, and then he says, Tertullian, Tertullian says, he will not allow her to be absent all night long at nocturnal convocations and paschal solemnities, in other words, religious services. She always wants to be gone to religious services. Or suffer her to creep into prison to kiss a martyr's bonds or even to exchange a kiss with one of the brethren. Please understand, we're not talking about right here on the smacker here. We're talking about how they even in Europe today, you kiss on this cheek and then you kiss on this cheek. 
And, and this unbelieving husband being quoted here by, by Tertullian is, is concerned about his wife. I mean, she, she's out helping others. She's ministering to the poor. She's at all these services, and, and she's, you know, greeting the brethren, and I don't like it. Another man who was a believer and was an unbeliever, and his wife was a believer, said, this is the reason I don't like it that my wife's become a Christian. First, she was no longer the person with whom he had fallen in love. She's changed. Hey, by the way, salvation changes you, doesn't it? And secondly, there was now another man around the house, and she was constantly talking about him and seeking his guidance. I'm not happy about that. And so, you know, some thought, well, we're in a mixed marriage. We're not single. If we're single, we don't have to get married. We don't have to be a part of replenishing the earth unless that's God's will for your life. If you're two believers married to each other, you don't serve God better separately from one another. You serve God together as a power couple. But if you're in a mixed marriage, as an unbeliever and a believer in that marriage, you don't have to divorce the unbeliever because you're going to be an instrument of God in their lives. God's going to use you. He actually sanctifies that family setting because of the believer's presence in that house. That's what he says, verse, verse 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The wife, the unbelieving wife, is sanctified by the husband. What does it mean? They're, they're set apart for a special work of God. Do you know how many Christians it takes in a home to make a Christian home? It takes one. One Christian in the home can make for a Christian home. Think about Timothy. Timothy's father was a, was a Greek. He, he, didn't, he was not a believer. As far as we know, he was never a believer in Jesus Christ. But Timothy's mother was, and Timothy's mother made their home a Christian home, and Timothy comes to faith in Christ. He, he was taught the Scriptures by his mother, by his grandmother. They made it a Christian home. In other words, when he says that you're sanctified, God sets you apart so that he can do a work. Your presence there becomes an instrument that he can do a work through you in the lives of your spouses, your unbelieving spouses. Think about Laban and Jacob. Remember what the Scripture says about Jacob and Laban, Jacob was working to earn the hand of Laban's daughter. You remember he got tricked and got Leah first and then got Rachel later. But when you, when you read the story, he, he's now ready to leave. He's got the wives, he's got his children, he's got all of this flock that has that's been multiplied that belonged to him. He's ready to go back home. And Laban comes to him and says, Laban, Laban says, Jacob, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Please don't leave me. And this is what he says. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. The presence of a believer in the home where there's an unbelieving spouse means that you are an instrument of bringing the blessing of God into that very family. Same thing is true with, with Joseph and Potiphar. Remember Joseph sold into slavery down here to Potiphar. And what is Potiphar? What does the Scripture say about how Joseph's life blessed Potiphar? It says, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Do you get what he's saying? 
You, you don't have to divorce if you're married to somebody who's an unbeliever. You become an instrument in God's hand to bring his blessing and his working right there into your family. As a matter of fact, isn't that what 1 Peter 3 is about? A woman who's married to an unbelieving husband. You don't have to preach to him, it says. You don't have to nag him. You just live a life before him that represents Jesus Christ, and God will use that testimony to draw your husband to himself. And that's what he's talking about. If you're married to an unbeliever, you don't have to leave that unbeliever. They're not, they're not going to corrupt you. I mean, they can, but they, they're not supposed to corrupt you. You're supposed to be the influence in that family to make it a Christian home, and God is using you to bring your loved ones to Christ. And it says that your children in that kind of mixed home by the presence of a believer being in that mixed home are holy. That doesn't mean that they're automatically saved. The antonym to holy here is unclean. So that what he's talking about is, is that a spiritual influence, a spiritual effect, you know how unclean, something was unclean, it was set apart. Your, your children are set apart to God. Your children are put under a place of spiritual influence and spiritual effects because of your presence in the home. It's not that they're automatically saved. That contradicts everything else the Scripture says. Every person has to believe on Jesus for himself or herself. No exceptions. I've lost some of you. You're looking like... It's, it's, I'm going to get practical here in a minute. Just hang on. I've got to make sure you understand the text. When he says your children be holy, it's not a statement about eternal salvation. It's about your children being set apart for God to do a work in their hearts and God to do a work in their lives. For many years, there was a man who attended our church, uh, attended our church, and his wife, back in the early days, they were here when I got here. He, he heard me give the gospel hundreds of times. He saw hundreds of invitations that I extended to people to receive Christ as Savior but he never responded to the gospel. His wife would ask me to pray for him. Please pray that my husband will be saved. Please pray that my husband will be saved. Their daughter got saved. Please pray that my husband will be saved. I went to the house on more than one occasion to try to share the gospel with him, and he never responded. He would never put his faith in Jesus. His wife became sick later in her life, and I conducted her memorial service. And as I do in every memorial service, if you don't want me to do this, don't ask me to do your memorial service. As I do in every memorial service, I gave the gospel. I talked about this dear Christian lady and about the impact she had had on my life and Mary's life and our church's lives, the church, the, the church members' lives. And I talked about all those things, but then I gave the gospel. And at the end, I gave people an opportunity to respond and say, I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior today. And when I said, Amen. Before the casket was moved from front to be taken out to the hearse, he got up out of his seat. The husband of the deceased lady got up out of the seat, walked to me at the pulpit, and said to me, Preacher, I just received Christ as my Savior. Thank God for the influence of his believing wife. And number four, and then we're going to get practical. Number four, some believers had been divorced by their unbelieving spouse, and they were wondering whether they were free to remarry 
or must remain single? And Paul answers that question, verse 15 and 16. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Brothers not, or sisters not under bondage. You say, that's a sort of a strange word for marriage. Well, we talk about the bonds of marriage. That's the word. Not under bondage. If they have left the marriage, you're not under bondage. You're free to divorce that spouse, that unbelieving spouse, and you're free, therefore, to remarry. And so Paul answers those questions that are being asked of him. So you got singles that the Jewish thought that should get married so that they could help replenish the earth like Genesis uh, 2 says. you got married couples who thought, mm, if we stay in this marriage, we might not be able to serve the Lord as good as we could separately. And Paul says, no, 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 no. P- marriage is permanent. you, you got a mixed marriage where you got an unbeliever and a believer. And he says, if the unbeliever is willing to live, wants to live, don't Divorce that unbeliever because your presence there can bring that unbelieving spouse and your children to Christ. And if your unbelieving spouse has already left you and the divorce is already final, you're not bound to a single life for the rest of your life. You're not under bondage. You can remarry. Now, let's make this applicable, okay? Are are y'all with me? You don't know what kind of morning I've had. Y'all got to stay with me. <laughs> got to stay with me. And I've got five things to say, and I don't know if I'll get through all of these, but I'm going to say them to you. Here we go. Number one, fight for your marriage. Paul's talking about the importance of the permanence of marriage. If you enter into a marriage, you should enter into that marriage to be permanent till death does you part. There's to be a permanence about your marriage. Unfortunately, marriage is not what most people think it is. It's not like the glamorized and fictionalized marriages on TV and in movies. You take your spouse to watch what's going on on a movie theater screen, and you think, well, that's what my marriage should be like. Or you look at pornography on the computer, and you think, that's what my marriage should be like. And that's just not the reality of life. Someone has said about marriage, It's not waking up every morning to make breakfast and eat together. It's not cuddling in bed until you both fall asleep. It's not a clean home filled with laughter and lovemaking every day. It's someone who steals all the covers and snores. It's slammed doors and a few harsh words at times. It's stubbornly disagreeing and giving each other the silent treatment until your hearts heal and then forgiveness. It's coming home to the same person every day that you know loves and cares for you in spite of and because of who you are. It's laughing about the, and I like this, one time, yeah, right. It's laughing about the one time you accidentally did something stupid. That was like in the first five minutes of my marriage. It's about dirty laundry and unmade beds. It's about helping each other with the hard work of life. It's about swallowing the nagging words instead of saying them out loud. It's about eating the easiest meal you can make and sitting down together at a late hour because you both have had a crazy day. It's about an emotional breakdown. And this obviously was written by a woman, so men, hold on here. (laughs) This particular one was obviously written by a woman. It's about an emotional breakdown and your spouse lays down with you and holds you and tells you everything is going to be okay and you believe them. A lady had to say that. I got two more to go. 
you realize there's, there's a lot of difference in men. You can't, you can't make it a, a generalized statement about everybody, but you realize men generally, when they have problems, want to get alone in a cave. Leave me alone. Don't talk to me. Let me figure it out. Let me work it out in my mind. Don't stand at the mouth of the cave saying, where, where are you? What are you doing down there? Men want to work it out, figure it out. Women, on the other hand, they don't want you to solve their problems most of the time. don't want you to solve their problems. They just want you to say, I understand. I, I really do. I get it. I feel for you. Don't give them a solution. They're going to slap you if you do. Just, you know, what he was saying here, just hold them. I understand what you're going through. I get it. I get it. It's about still loving someone, even though sometimes you, you make you, they make you absolutely insane. Loving someone isn't always easy. Sometimes it's hard, but it's amazing and comforting and one of the best things you'll ever experience if you recognize the reality of marriage. Marriage is to be permanent. If you're single, you don't have to get married to help replenish the earth if that's not what God wants for you. If you're married, you don't have to get divorced to be able to serve God. Serve God together as a power team. If you're in a mixed marriage, a believing and unbeliever, the believer is the one who sanctifies and sets apart that home for God to do a great work in that home. And if you're already divorced, God didn't intend for you to stay single forever. But when you get remarried, would you stop and remember what marriage really is? Marriage isn't what they put on the screens at the movie theaters. It's not what's on your television. It's not what you read about in those magazines. There's all kinds of attacks against marriage today. Spiritual indifference is an attack against marriage. I'm not going to get into that at this moment. Infidelity is an attack. Lack of communication is an attack. Financial problems can become an attack against your marriage. Unrealistic expectations become an attack against your marriage. Addictions of different kinds become attacks against your marriage. A lack of intimacy becomes an attack against your marriage. And a list like that can go on. What am I telling you? Satan wants to destroy your marriage. And he loves nothing more than to take down Christians in marriage. Nothing pleases him better. One of my favorite authors is Charles Swindoll. I wish I, could, I wish I could speak like Charles Swindoll and write like Charles Swindoll. Somehow he's able to take words and draw pictures that you can just see them. Listen to his words. Speaking about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this text that we've just read through. In light of Paul's clear encouragement to remain married, let's consider committing ourselves to the countercultural but thoroughly Christian a thoroughly Christian response to marital problems. Let's commit to working through regardless. Let me remind you that any achievement, now listen to this, let me remind you that any achievement worth remembering is stained with the blood of diligence and determination while etched with the scars of disappointment. I love those words. It's my observation, he says, that in many cases, couples call it quits long before they reach any sort of biblical grounds for separation or divorce. Irreconcilable differences, personal happiness, and I just don't love you anymore aren't biblical reasons for divorce. Yet these two often become, these too often become the grounds for retreat when Scripture exhorts us to continue to fight the good fight. I didn't say fight each other. That might happen sometimes. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. We live in a society in a day when people just walk away. It, it, you know, 
the generation before me, especially not so much my generation, but the greatest generation, they didn't have much money. They came through the Depression. They taped things up. They made it work. They made it last. And they said, we're going to give to our children, my generation, the best we can possibly give them. Make life as easy as we can possibly make it. And they made it easy for us. And they made it easy for us to walk away when it gets tough. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. I'm not going to let anything get between me and my spouse. I'm not going to let somebody else get between me and my spouse. We're going to love each other. We're going to have a life together. We're going to make this work. We might not always see eye to eye. We might not always like the same things, but we're going to make this work. I have never to this day, nearly 45 years, I have never to this day ever had a couple say when they came to talk about marriage, say, well, I'm not sure if we're going to make it or not. We want to get married anyway. Every couple says, I love him, I love her. We want to spend our lives together. And I've had occasion, because I've been in one place for a long time, for some of those couples to come back with the brokenness. And sometimes the sinning sinning spouse will say, well, I never really loved her. And I love it when they come to me to say that, because I say, wait a minute. You said in my office, you said you couldn't live without her. You couldn't live without him. Somewhere you stopped fighting for your marriage. You understand transgenderism and homosexuality and lesbianism and all of these other things, these ideologies, all of these things that are permeating our society are attacks at the home. They are satanic attacks at your marriage They are wanting to take down your children and your marriage. Number two, fight for your marriage, number one. Number two, focus on expressing love through good deeds and words. Focus on expressing love through good deeds and words. I read a story recently about a couple who were watching TV one Sunday afternoon, and suddenly the husband said, well, I need to go outside and check on something. Well, he stepped out. He was gone for a while, and his wife got a little worried. So she started searching for him in the backyard, the front yard, in the house, out in the garage, but he wasn't anywhere to be found. After three hours, she was really concerned, and she talked to a neighbor who suggested she call the police. And and the wife agreed, but because this wasn't what he normally did. When the police arrived, they asked her to describe her husband. She said he's six foot four inches tall with thick black wavy hair. He's very fit and strong with a 46-inch chest and a 34-inch waist. I'm the opposite of that. (laughs) He's kind and gentle, great with the kids, and sweet to our dog. Everyone in the neighborhood just loves him. That's how she described him to the police. Well, her neighbor was listening to all this. Her eyes were bugged out. Her mouth was hanging open to this description. She pulled her friend aside in disbelief and said, Your husband is fat, short, and bald with a large waist, larger waist than his chest. He's unkind to the kids, to the dog, and no one in the neighborhood really likes him. And this man's wife responded, oh, I know, but who wants him back? (laughs) Somebody overheard a married girl talking to her single friend. She said, well, let me tell you, 
Here's the story. You can stay single and be lonely all your life, or you can get married like me and wish you were dead. Loving through good deeds and words. Loving through good deeds and words. It's so easy to focus on the negatives and totally miss the positive qualities of our spouses. You know, we've, we've lived with them long enough that we know the shortcomings and we know the weaknesses, and that's all we ever see. Actually, we too often get back from our spouse is exactly what we accentuate about our spouses. Do you realize your spouses often are like mirrors? If all you're doing is pointing out and nagging and angry with, and this was wrong, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, is it any wonder you're getting that back? Listen to Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can speak life to your marriage. You can do good deeds to build your marriage. Or you can speak death to your marriage. You can say, well, I don't want that guy back. <laughs> I want to describe the guy I really want. Can't we just be nice to each other and seek to do loving things and speak loving words to each other? I mean, we all slip up at times. Any of you not slip up at times? We all slip up at times, but don't, 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 we, don't, we, don't we or shouldn't we treat each other in a loving fashion and not like the enemy? I mean, saying what you're about to say, is that really going to improve your marriage or is it going to make it worse? Um, I knew this message was coming, this, this message. You, you figured that, didn't you? I've been studying this for a long time, and I knew this message was coming, so I, I thought I better practice what I preach. And I asked my wife if I could share this, by the way, and she gave me permission. It's a text that I sent to her. Now, you understand, I knew what was coming, so I wanted to look good in front of you. <laughs> I knew what was coming. And you say a text? Yeah, not a sappy card. Yeah, I understand. Not a sappy card, not a dinner out. A text. I get it. I, I understand. That's, you know, that's not what you would do. I got it. But you got to understand, Mary's in the back of the house. She texts me out in the living room, and I answer her back in the back of the house by text. It's just how we operate. And the truth is, I wish I was a whole lot more thoughtful and loving to her than I am. Anyway, these are the words I wrote. Listen carefully. Listen carefully, because I'm, I'm about to give you an assignment. I said, dear sweetheart, I just want you to know that I love you and I, I want you to know that I love you and only you. You are my wife and best friend. I have never loved anyone else like I love you. Of course, being my wife isn't easy because I'm not easy. But it puts you in a category all to yourself and no one will ever have that place in my life. I just wanted to make sure you understand how I feel. Aww. made her the happiest woman on the planet. A text. Here's your assignment. We're talking about 
expressing love through good deeds and words. Here's your assignment. I'm going to ask you to show your hands here in a minute. You're going to write a text and send it to your spouse. You've got to be married. <laughs> Not to a spouse. You're going to send it to your spouse. You're going to write a text this afternoon. And you're going to send it to your spouse expressing simply that you love your spouse. I never forget, we were at a couples retreat many years ago. We need to do these again. The couples retreat many years ago, and I told the couples, I said, I want you to describe how you love your spouse using terminology, you know, in the terminology that you understand. And, and one of the men there works heavy equipment and a big crane. And he said to his wife, you are to me like a 40-ton crane. 40-ton new crane, and, and I, I, I think he might have missed a little bit of the point. <laughs> That's your assignment this afternoon, to text your spouse. It's even better if you just want to sit down and look at them face-to-face and say it, or maybe get, get them a card and write it. But how many of you will do that with me? You're gonna, remember in the God's Not Dead movie, the end of the movie, you get on the phone and you text, you text the words, God's not dead to somebody. I'm asking you to text some even more important words when it relates to your marriage, and that is the love that you have for your spouse. How many of you will do that? I'm going to text my spouse or write a card or sit down in their presence. Come, right, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. I want to see here. There ought to be a whole lot of loving going on this afternoon. <laughs> Focus on expressing love through good deeds and words. Number three, number three, and I'm going to finish up. Come on. Forgive each other freely and quickly. Forgive each other freely and quickly. Ephesians 4, 26. We're talking about the permanence of marriage. Singles, you don't have to get married to replenish the earth. That's, that doesn't have to be your responsibility. Married couples, Christians, you don't have to divorce to serve God. Stay together. Be a power couple. Mixed marriages, unbeliever and believer, you don't have to divorce your unbelieving spouse. You become the instrument of God in your home to draw your spouse and your children to Christ. And you're already divorced. God's not through with you. God's got a plan for you. Your life is not a throwaway. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Forgive each other freely and quickly. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry. Y'all ever been angry in your marriage? Be angry and do not sin. Now listen carefully. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You know what that means? It means forgive freely and quickly. There have been times that I definitely wanted to resolve things with my wife before going to bed, primarily because if she went to bed angry, I thought I might not wake up the next morning. Just resolve this before I go into sleep and maybe never wake up. <laughs> Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another. Isn't that what we were talking about a moment ago? Tenderhearted. Now listen, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So well, I'm just the kind of person that just can't forgive. Listen to what somebody said. He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself, for every man has need to be forgiven. And before you take that attitude, well, I'm just not going to forgive her, and I'm just not going to forgive him, you better stop. You're going to have to cross that bridge at some point. Don't burn that bridge. 
forgive each other freely and quickly. When I think about forgiveness, I can't help but think about the story of the father and the prodigal son. He takes his portion of the inheritance. He squanders it down here in a life, throws it away till he has nothing left. He's in a pig pen eating what the pigs eat. He comes to himself and says, my, uh, my father's servants have a better life than I've got. I'm going to return to my father. And he starts heading to his father. And before he gets to the house, the father is looking over the, the horizon and sees his son coming. And he runs. Ancient men didn't run. They walked. Young men ran. Ancient men didn't run. The father runs to his son, embraces his son, gets him a new robe, gets him a new ring, puts new sandals on his feet, throws him a party because my son that was lost has been found. That's the kind of forgiveness that we ought to be extending to each other. The kind of forgiveness that says, I receive you. And I love you. Number four, follow the Lord faithfully together as a couple. Follow the Lord faithfully together as a couple. I mentioned this earlier. I just want you to remember what, what, what Amos said. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3. 3. One of the most important things you can do in your marriage is both of you be following the Lord. Both of you be seeking the Lord. Both of you be honoring the Lord with your lives. You realize it's impossible for two sinners, hear the words, two sinners to get married and not have differences, not have faults, not have shortcomings, and not have deficiencies. I know, ladies, that your husband thought that he was as near to God as anybody could possibly be, and as soon as you married him, he fell like Lucifer fell from the heavens above. That's the reality of all of us. We're all sinners. We all have shortcomings. We all have deficiencies. We all have faults. We all have differences. But what happens when both spouses are seeking the Lord is that they be, they're being transformed into saints. You're being transformed into a saint. From the way you were living as a sinner into being a saint. And a saint is first a believer in Jesus, but he or she is also a spirit-filled person with the ability, the supernatural ability to love, even when a spouse might not be so easy to love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. This isn't a love that you have to dredge up. It's not based on a long list of commonalities that you share together. This is a love that God works out in your life that is supernatural, that no circumstance or hurtful situation can destroy. Every couple will inevitably have to depend on this kind of Holy Spirit love at some time in their marriage. There's going to be some times when you don't feel love, but God gives you love. Number five and finally. Are you all still, still with me? You got... You got singles over here. You don't have to get married. You don't have to follow the command to replenish the earth if God didn't intend for you to be married. If you're two Christians married to each other, you don't have to divorce to go serve the Lord separately. You, you serve the Lord together as a power team. You're, married in a, you're in a mixed marriage. You don't have to divorce your unbelieving spouse. You become the instrument of God in that family. And if you're already divorced, God's not through with you. 
God's got a plan for your life. Number five, seek help if you're stuck and unable to move forward. I don't know how many times I have to say this to people, but there is no shame in asking for help from someone outside your marriage to help you work through things you can't work out yourselves. You know why we don't do that? It's a little little word called, well, let me just spell it for you. P-R-I-D-E. I'm too proud to ask someone for help. That's a foolish position to take. And might I just suggest as I finish this point, when you ask for help, ask for help from people who are believers in Jesus and know his word. I want to remind you of Psalm 1-1. Psalm 1-1. Listen to it. We're talking about getting counsel. We're talking about somebody else helping us, advising us. Listen to what it says. Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I'm not saying that every unbelieving counselor will always give bad advice. They just don't have the knowledge that believers have of how God is at work inside of us and through us and how God is changing us. And they might have a few principles here or there that might be helpful to you. But what you need more than anybody else when it comes to the matter of helping you work through something you can't work out yourselves, you need somebody who is a godly individual, a man or a woman who knows the Word of God and knows God. And says, let me counsel you according to the scripture. 